So the winner of the Q&A submission contest was a question that came from John Needham. And I would summarize John's question as statins versus sulfur for heart disease. And it really is more like several questions, one of which is how safe and effective are statins and then how safe and effective is sulfur for the prevention of heart disease. And John gave some background where he links to a study that came out of Peter Langjohn's group. I don't, I don't know if it, if if Langjohn was the, um, he was like the second or third author, but he was the one that I knew that I knew most out of it. That basically argues that statins could be causative in coronary artery calcification and actually increase heart disease deaths as a result of being toxic to the mitochondria and increasing calcification of the arteries. And then John also linked to a a second paper that was actually referenced in that first paper. I heard some feedback. I don't I don't think it's me. All right. John also li- linked to a uh, a second paper that was part of that was referenced in that first paper that was an observational study showing more calcification among people who are using statins. And then an analysis on the nnt.com or the number needed to treat.com that basically argued that a lot of people need to take a statin in order to prevent any heart disease deaths and they don't look so hot from a side effect perspective where you actually have a much smaller number needed to cause a side effect than to uh, actually save someone from heart disease. So there's that. And then the second part of his question, he refers to an experiment done by Lester Morrison that dramatically lowered the risk of heart disease by feeding chondroitin sulfate. And the experiment with that George Mann had done in monkeys that was also echoed in numerous other species showing that if you fed any type of sulfur that was an essential form of sulfur. So as long as it, as long as it was one of the nutritionally required forms of sulfur, it would basically abolish the hypercholesterolemia that you would get from cholesterol feeding. And so John wants to know, you know, on the one hand, what do I think about statins? He's kind of worried to take them given what he's read. And then on the other hand, what do I think about how safe and effective sulfur or chondroitin sulfate might be in the prevention of heart disease? So <clears throat> after giving that background, John phrases his first question as, is there any reason is there anything to contradict the apparent message that statins do not reduce all-cause mortality, even if they may assist with someone diagnosed with cardiovascular disease in particular? Yes, absolutely there is. So, you know, if you just go to the Cochrane Library's 2013 systematic review statins for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, 
this is the pooled results of all the trials done for primary prevention, which means these are people who don't have established heart disease, although they might, you know, have undiagnosed heart disease. These are there's a population of people that have not been diagnosed with having cardiovascular disease. And it shows that the pooled results show decreased all-cause mortality. So uh you know, the author's conclusions are reductions in all-cause mortality, major vascular events, and revascularizations were found with no excess of adverse events among people without evidence of CBD treated with statins. And if you go to their results, in the abstract, they say all-cause mortality was reduced by statins uh, by 14%, as was combined fatal and non-fatal CBD, combined fatal and non-fatal CHD events, and combined fatal and non-fatal stroke. Redu uh, evidence available to date showed that primary prevention with statins is likely to be a cost-effective, is likely to be cost-effective and may improve patient quality of life. Recent findings from the, uh, well, okay, so that's, that's the gist of it. So you got a 14% reduction in all-cause mortality with the pooled results of all the primary prevention trials, which are the which are the that's the weak set of data, right? The the stronger set of data for statins is is in secondary prevention, where you know someone has heart disease, can you can you stop them from getting another heart attack? That's where the strong data is. So the weak data set is primary prevention, and that shows a fourteen percent decrease in all cause mortality. Now, it's not to say that you there's no criticism of this. So if I just keyword. Uh, search for industry. I come to the point where they say all but one of the trials had some form of phar pharmaceutical industry sponsorship. It is now established that published pharmaceutical industry sponsored trials are more likely than non-industry sponsored trials to report results and conclusions that favor drug over placebo, over placebo due to biased reporting and or inter interpretation of the trial results. The reporting of adverse events in these trials is generally poor, with failure to provide details of severity and type of adverse events or to report on health-related quality of life. So, And then they go on to say why, despite that, we still trust our findings. But you see they've basically undermined them there by saying that all of these trials, except for one, are funded by industry, which we know means that they're inaccurate, both in favoring the drug over the placebo due to biased reporting or interpretation. And also, although these seem to have a very low risk of adverse events, the reporting of adverse events in these trials was poor with failure to provide details. And, you know, so so basically none of the results can be trusted. So I think that is, you know, that's very interesting when you go to the paper by Langs, Joan, and, and colleagues that John had uh, had linked to, because there's a a graph I want to show you in here. Let me just pull it up. So they have a a fascinating graph of the trials before and after 2004 when the European Union had made it, had basically made stricter regulations to penalize conflicts of interests. So let me share my screen and go straight to this graph. So 
on the left, on the left is all the trials before the EU started penalizing conflicts of interest in that 2004 re regulation. And on the right is all the ones afterwards. And what you're seeing here is LDL cholesterol levels plotted on the bottom and coronary artery events is plotted on the top. So as you, if, if the arrow is pointing up, it means, and it's, it's weird because we're reading, used to reading left to right and all these arrows are pointing left from, from right to left. But, um, and that's because they're, LDL cholesterol is on the, is plotted on the horizontal axis, so it's they're all pointing to the left because all the statin trials reduced cholesterol, so that's why they're all pointing to the left. So if the arrow is pointing up, it means coronary artery events increased by statins. If the arrow is pointing down, it means coronary artery events decreased because of statins. And all the arrows point left because statins reduced cholesterol, which makes the arrow point left. If the arrow was pointing right, it would mean statins increased cholesterol, but that didn't happen in any of these trials. So on the left, what you can see is uh, the dark blue represents secondary prevention, which is prevention of future heart disease in someone who already has it. So you got a heart attack once, let's see if we can prevent you from getting another one. Primary prevention is let's see if we can prevent heart attacks in people that we don't know have heart disease who presumably have never had heart had a heart attack or at least didn't know it and it wasn't documented anywhere and and that's the light green color on towards the bottom and this this first upper red dotted line is basically showing you the pooled results of all the of all the secondary prevention trials and this uh second red line red dotted line is showing you the pooled results of all the primary prevention trials so secondary prevention is the strong data that are showing a steep decline in heart disease risk. You know, a, that is proportion, roughly proportional to the degree to which you're going leftward on the graph. Uh, so they're decreasing cholesterol and they're decreasing coronary artery, artery disease and they're doing it very strongly. In primary prevention, this is a weaker data set because we don't know that these people have heart disease. So we have a larger number to needed to treat, meaning we have a larger number of people that need to take a statin in order to present one, prevent one from getting heart disease. And the dot, dotted red lines, it's still showing a decrease in heart disease, but it is the slope of this line is much more shallow than the primary prevention line. So as you would expect, right? Because Primary prevention means some of these people are are at risk of the thing you're trying to treat. Uh, secondary prevention means all of them are. So of course you're going to get stronger results when everyone is handpicked to be the type of thing that you're trying to prevent, rather than just picking a bunch of people on the street and some of them are. Right. But what's interesting though is when you go over to the right, this is all the trials that were done after the EU started penalizing conflicts of interest. And so basically the conflicts of interest went dramatically down in these trials. And I don't know that that's, that you can say that's the only thing that happened, but it's interesting that the pooled result, there's no dotted red line here because the pooled results show that they didn't do anything to heart disease risk. And if you look at the individual arrows, you see some increased heart disease risk like this one and this one, some decreased like this one, but the decreases are really shallow and a couple, you know, the, the two of the increases are kind of steep. 
one of the increases kind of shallow and the end result is that there's no there's no pool statistically significant pooled effect on heart disease risk now you know part of part of the issue is that they did all the primary prevention ones that they wanted to do at the beginning then they moved on to secondary prevention so here i think you're dealing with like special populations of secondary prevention, like let's take people with type two diabetes and do it right. So it's the populations aren't exactly the same, um, and so you, you can't say like it's because they would they got strict on conflict of interest that you, we know that's why they stopped finding good results, you know. But it looks highly suspicious, right? And so this this is separated by by conflicts of interest, not by industry funding. So I I believe that most of these still have industry funding. Um, but I didn't, I didn't look at all the individual trials. So I, I think in a broad, you know, in a broad overview, I think the statin trial evidence in pooled together looks very favorable to statins, but there's good reasons to think that when you remove the conflicts of interest and in industry funding, you're what you're left with a much less impressive result. Now, this argument that statins increase calcification and and heart disease risk, I, I kind of view it as, look, let's back up and think about what, what are the causative mechanisms of heart disease. And if we want to make it simple, it's oxidation of lipoproteins in the subendothelial space, which is behind the inner lining of the blood vessel wall leading to an immune response that gobbles those up to prevent the toxicity of the oxidized lipids from causing harm to the blood vessel wall. That creates a plaque. Those plaques need to be stabilized by collagen. But a larger degree of lipid, oxidized lipid accumulation and inflammation in the plaque will destabilize the collagen. Collagen synthesis will stabilize the collagen and microcalcifications, calcium deposits that are very tiny, in that are not visualizable on a calcium a coronary calcium scan, that are too small to be visualized on a coronary calcium scan, those destabilize the plaque and make it more likely to rupture. When the plaque ruptures, that's when you get a cardiovascular event, usually. And there are there are nuances to add, but that's the general gist of what's usually happening. In a cardiovascular, in an ischemic cardiovascular event. So, if you think about this, anything that you do, and then I should say, then the, you know, in the event, the blood supply to the heart's blocked off in a in a myocardial infarction. You could, you could have similar things going on in a stroke, uh, in an ischemic stroke. But let's take a a coronary. Um, a myocardial infarction due to a coronary thrombus. So you have a blood clot that's blocking a coronary artery and it's cutting off the blood supply to the heart. And then you have hypoxia in the heart that causes the tissue to die because the hypoxia is compromising the metabolism at the level of the mitochondria. So statins, they decrease cholesterol synthesis in the liver and increase the LDL receptor, which takes lipoproteins out of the blood fast at a, at a rate that will prevent those lipoproteins from oxidizing and contributing to plaque development. But statins also decrease the 
the synthesis of coenzyme Q10, which is toxic to mitochondria, and they also decrease the synthesis of vitamin of uh, the metaquinone four type of vitamin K2, which is needed to prevent calcifications in the arteries. And so statins obviously are capable of decreasing heart disease risk and increasing heart disease risk based on the balance of mechanisms of whether you have done more to prevent the oxidation of lipids by increasing their uptake into the liver versus have done more to promote calcification by hurting uh, MK, MK4 synthesis or worsen the state of the mitochondria, which you know, even in the classical ischemic myocardial infarction, if you have less resilient mitochondria, you're way more likely to get death of the heart tissue or to die because the the key difference between life and death of the cell of the tissue and of you is all about whether you can keep the mitochondrial respiration in the heart tissue going long enough during this period where the blood supply has been cut off. You know, so of course statins can decrease heart disease and increase heart disease. That's just straightforward. The question is, you know, what's the balance and you know, do you judge the probability for yourself based on the trials? Or do you try to adjust the trial results based on what you think they would have shown if they were all free of conflicts of interest? I mean, you could do that, but I think of it much more differently because I think if I'm myself trying to make the decision for myself, I'm not concerned with the population level results in observational studies or the populations of the trials. I'm interested in, is this the best choice that I can make for myself? So me personally, my cholesterol has always run low. And so I'm probably not going to be, ever be faced with this decision. You know, but if my cholesterol were running high, I would think, is, are there other things that I can do and you know, that have a better cost-benefit profile? Because if I can maintain robust vitamin K and CoQ10 status, and I can maintain robust mitochondrial health, and I can also may, maintain healthy blood lipids, then I have the best of all those worlds, right? And so I, I think that that brings us to John's the second part of John's question, which is what about doing this with chondroitin sulfate? And so he links to a study from Lester Morrison, who had 120 patients with ischemic heart disease randomly divided into two groups of 60. I don't know how it wasn't really clear whether they were randomizing in the modern sense when I read that paper, but you know, split into two groups of 60. Mortality over 2.5 years for the control group was higher than the group treated with chondroitin sulfate at 1,500 milligrams daily after initial higher dose. Non-fatal events seem to be very much higher in the control group. And, uh, you know, if we just go to the abstract there, they've got 21 people in the control group had acute cardiac episodes or myocardial ischemia, four deaths. And in the in the treatment group with the chondroitin sulfate, there were there were five deaths. Oh, so here we go. This this didn't decrease all cause mortality either. It increased it by twenty percent. If you if you want to play with if you want to do ball with these uh, small numbers. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. 
I mean, to me, this is no difference in the deaths. The deaths are too small in number. Um, but the where's the current? So um, in the treatment group. There were seven times, so there were seven times as many. Uh, oh, I see. Okay, there were three cases of coronary episodes in the treatment group. So they seven. He Lester Morrison sevenfold decreased the risk of coronary episodes over two and a half years among 120 ischemic heart disease patients with 1,500 milligrams of chondroitin sulfate. Uh, although for a brief period at the beginning, they were fed 10 grams of chondroitin sulfate. So in that paper, I, I mean, to me, it sounds like he mentions antithrombotic effects of this at first, but then he goes on to interpret it mostly as a hypocholesterolemic effect. And if you go to George Mann's study, Mann basically showed that in monkeys, and this was repeated in several other species, that you could do this with methionine and you could do this with cysteine and you could do this with taurine and it you know and and that would no matter which form of nutritionally important sulfur you fed you're getting this dramatic decrease in cholesterol levels you're basically abolishing the ability of cholesterol feeding to cause high cholesterol so why would that do that well Based on my reading of the research, I think there are two mechanisms. So one that was familiar to George Mann was that most of these sulfur products are metabolized into taurine, and taurine will increase bile acid salt formation, which will Im increase the degree to which your bile acids leave the liver as bile salts and go to the intestines. And so because the bile acids in the liver decline and because cholesterol is turned into bile acids, the liver will start turning more cholesterol into bile acids and that will use up the cholesterol. And because the cholesterol in the liver drops, then the liver will increase its expression of the LDL receptor and take in more cholesterol from the blood, in the for take in LDL particles from the blood. And, you know, that's that's sort of like very similar to what cholesteramine and I think what fibrates were doing, which were pre-statin cholesterol lowering drugs, where your you know, cholesteramine is like this gum that binds up your bile in your intestines and makes you excrete it in the feces so they don't get reabsorbed. And the, the same process happens. It's all from reducing bile acids in the liver. There's another mechanism that I, I think that George Mann wasn't aware of at that time because it took us decades to map out all the lipoprotein metabolism, but heparin sulfate proteoglycans on the liver will take up any ApoE-containing lipoproteins in addition to the LDL receptor taking up ApoB-containing lipoproteins. And when you eat a meal, your chylomicrons, which are the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins that go from your intestines to your lymph to your blood are the main APOE-containing lipoprotein. However, six hours after a meal, they're largely metabolized into LDL particles that contain APOE. So if you, if you improve your heparin sulfate amount concentration on the surface of the liver, you'll take up 
chylomicrons faster and prevent them from being metabolized into LDL particles. And then you'll also more quickly take up the postprandial six-hour out LDL particles that have been metabolized from chylomicrons. And so you're overall re reducing the, you're certainly going to reduce like a lot of the postprandial cholesterol in the blood in that way. So I think those two things are what's going on. Now, the question is, you know, do you need to, to uh, use chondroitin sulfate to do that? I don't think so. I mean, first of all, remember your key performance indicator here, your KPI is your blood cholesterol levels, right? Because everyone, George Mann and Lester Morrison, were both assuming that you're doing this to lower cholesterol levels, which will lower heart disease risk. Now, I think because of experiments that were done later, that it's all about oxidation of lipoproteins, but it doesn't matter. If you stimulate the liver's uptake of these lipoproteins, you will prevent them from oxidizing the subendothelial space. And so what George Mann showed was that you don't need chondroitin. You can use any sulfur amino acid. You can use taurine, methionine, cysteine, etc. So to me, and he's doing this in, you know, he showed that you had to be deficient in these to, to use cholesterol feeding to increase cholesterol levels in these animals. So he's correcting a deficiency. So I don't think there's good data showing that chondroitin sulfate is toxic or is harmful. However, there is there are studies suggesting that its bioavailability, its absorption from the, from the gut might be as low as 12%. And, it, and no one thinks that it's, that it's really high, right? But there's controversy over whether it's really low or whether it's, you know, 60, 70%. If you don't absorb it from the gut, it's left over to be metabolized by gut bacteria. And I know some people know they have a problem with sulfur metabolizing bacteria, but I think many more people have some in the gut. And they're not going to have a problem until they start pounding the gut with sulfur components that are poorly absorbed in the small intestine. And so I think that there is some risk that you negatively alter your gut microbiota by taking 1,500 milligrams of chondroitin sulfate forever until you, you know, for the next 40 years. Um, and so I would much rather get that sulfur requirement from protein, which is how you usually get sulfur. And this is just my opinion. I can't justify it with heart disease trials. But I, I believe that if you shoot to meet your total protein of 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight with the predominance of that being from animal protein, you'll get all the sulfate that you need, providing that you have vitamin B6 and iron and all the other things that you need to go down the, the sulfur metabolizing pathway. And so that's my opinion. I, I think chondroitin sulfate is probably is probably safe and it probably works. But if it's working, you know by your cholesterol levels, but you could probably achieve the same thing with less risk to altering the gut microbiome by meeting your protein requirement for you know for what we would nowadays say is good for healthy body composition, 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kilogram body weight, and doing that with the bulk of it being from animal proteins that provide you with all the sulfur amino acids and therefore all the sulfate that you're going to need. All right. Thank you, John, for your question. 
we're going to do the two runners up and then we're going to go to the to the uh raised hands and then we are going to go to the Q&A box. So the first runner up is from Will Estes and Will Estes has a question that is highly related to John Needham's question in that it's it's all about sulfur metabolism. And so in a way with Will's question we're picking up where we left off from John's question. So let me bring up Will's question. So if I were to summarize Will's question, it's why do some people who are chronically ill not tolerate glutathione? And what are some home experiments we can do to figure out what the cause of the intolerance is and thereby figure out what might we be able to do about it to improve that tolerance? And to go into a little bit more detail, Will says, it seems to be extremely common among chronically ill people to not tolerate vitamin C, supplemental glutathione, or glutathione precursors such as NAC. Often these same people do not tolerate vitamin B6. In my own case, I get extreme brain fog within two hours of the supplementation, and the degree of brain fog seems to correlate to the size of the glutathione dose. If I had to form a vague hypothesis about this, it feels like the whole system of glutathione metabolism and its supporting enzymes has some critical pathway that becomes unbalanced and then exhausted after supplementation. And this leads to a state of no glutathione or minimum glutathione. At that point, ROS, reactive oxygen species, run free and create symptoms such as brain fog. It might be that we need different proportions of each glutathione precursor or supporting nutrient. Can you come up with any theories about which parts of the glutathione recycling system would most commonly fail across a broad spectrum of individuals? And can you think of experiments we could try at home to try or isolate which part of the system is not working well? How could we tweak the supplementation to possibly work around these issues? Is there any formal testing we can do to isolate the source of the problem? All right, so let's go over what we would expect glutathione to break down to. And I want to say at the start that we can't rule out that the glutathione is being metabolized by sulfur metabolizing bacteria in the gut. I think for Will, this isn't the case because in the in the comment thread that responded to his question and in his responses to John's question, he was saying that in the past, he's had that issue. And after he's cleared out sulfur metabolizing bacteria from his gut, now he can better tolerate sulfur, but he still has this problem with glutathione. So I don't think it's sulfur in the gut for him, but speaking to the broad spectrum of individuals he's referring to, I think for some people, it's going to be, it, it could be sulfur metabolism in the gut. And I think working with a, a gut-oriented healthcare practitioner who can help you resolve that would be a direction to go in. But I think as a simple test at home, up to 2,000 micrograms of molybdenum taken simultaneously with the glutathione, if that wipes it out, then I think that's a, a gut issue because molybdenum doesn't just support sulfite conversion to sulfate. That's the toxic sulfite to the non-toxic sulfate in our bodies. In, and we only need very small amounts of molybdenum for that. But 
molybdenum will directly poison the sulfur metabolism of sulfur metabolizing bacteria in the intestines. And, and so if a larger dose of, if a very large dose of molybdenum simultaneous with the glutathione is knocking that problem out, then I think that's a bacterial thing in the gut. Okay. So putting that aside, Let's run down. Let's assume that glutathione gets absorbed into the body and then it's doing its, its damage in this intolerance reaction. So let's start by looking at what we do with glutathione. And let me bring up a diagram for you. All right. So glutathione is broken down into dipeptides and amino acids in the gut, and it's also absorbed intact in the gut. And no one knows the proportions. But let's assume that you absorb it intact from the gut. That glutathione is largely going to be taken up by the liver. And then the liver glutathione uh, pool becomes a cysteine reservoir for other tissues. And some tissues can take up glutathione intact and there is glutathione circulating in the plasma, but there is way less glutathione circulating in the plasma than there is cysteine. And so the liver is has glutathione for its own purposes and has it as a cysteine reserve. And it is largely cysteine that is going to circulate. And of course, the other amino acids will... will um, if you break down glutathione to the cysteine in it, you're going to break it also down into glutamate and glycine because it's a tripeptide of glutamate, cysteine, and glycine. But when we're just thinking about the the, the what they call the gamma glutamyl cycle, we're thinking about a, a cycle of cysteine supplied to the body where the liver stores it as glutathione and then will release it into the blood where it will get cleaved into cysteinal glycine that will then get cleaved into glycine and cysteine. And the glutamate from the, uh, from, let me point this out. Uh, let me, let me say this a little bit more clearly. So glutathione is, is gamma glutamyl cysteinal glycine. And that's, this glue is glutamate, CYS is cysteine, GLY is glycine. So gamma glutamyl transferase or transpeptidase will take the gamma glutamyl portion of this, that's the glutamate, and join it to cysteine to make cysteinal, uh, oh, to make gamma glutamyl cysteine over here. And what's left from that will be cysteinal glycine, and cysteinal glycine can be cleaved into glycine and cysteine. And gamma glutamyl cysteine can also be cleaved into um, glutamate and cysteine. Um, although it, it can also be taken up directly and be reformed, uh, it can also be taken up directly into cells, cleaved to cysteine, and then and then everything starts over in in glutathione synthesis. Um, okay, and so so as a general rule, uh, cysteine can be quite toxic intracellularly at high concentrations uh, or extracellularly, and so inside the cell you are trying to keep it as gamma glutamyl cysteine when you can, or as glutathione. And then outside the cell, you're, you either have this gamma glutamyl cysteine that you're going to funnel into the cell, or this cysteine is going to be largely 
in the oxidized cysteine uh, cysteine form, which is two cysteine bound together um, as a di- in a disulfide bond. And so you're you're generally doing whatever you can to prevent the free thiol, the free sulfur part of cysteine from being running around on its own, open up, ready to react because it's highly reactive and that can have toxic effects. Anyway, the point is that you can have free glutamate, free cysteine, and free glycine in the breakdown of glutathione, any of which can have uh, potential effects that you might experience as intolerance. Now, the three of them, all three of them can generate ammonia. And so that could be the problem. Although I would think that if you had a problem with ammonia, that you would also have this problem just from eating protein. But then again, I would think if you had a problem with glutathione, you'd also have the problem from eating protein because your glutathione status, all you in normal metabolism is your glutathione status goes up whenever you eat a protein-rich meal. If it's protein and carb-rich especially, because amino acids supply the building blocks for glutathione and carb supplies the insulin, which, which provides the signal to make glutathione. So I wouldn't rule out ammonia. And also, it's, it's worth noting that uh, cysteine in particular has some... Usually, when you break down amino acids to form ammonia, it's because you need to burn them for energy or you need to convert them into glucose. And cysteine has some... Cysteine and glycine both have some unusual aspects to their metabolism that will increase ammonia generation under certain circumstances. So glycine can actually be broken down in the absence of other methyl donors to contribute to the methylation of folate. And when it is... When it is broken down for that purpose, it'll generate ammonia. So it might be folate metabolism is dictating ammonia generation from glycine. And then cysteine, we'll go over in much more detail in a minute. But cysteine has its, its sort of its own metabolism uh, can, can lead to ammonia generation apart from the usual reasons for it. So it's not because you're trying to convert it into glucose uh, that you that you generate ammonia from cysteine. So let's now go to this this paper to talk about cysteine metabolism. This is by Martha H. Stepanek, dealing with methionine, homocysteine, sulfur, cysteine metabolism, taurine, and inorganic sulfur. A review from 2011. Very good resource. So. This is all a little complicated, and and I'll summarize it for you. But um, if you're eating glutathione, you break down cysteine. You are not coming in at homocysteine and serine. So in the in the transmethylation uh, in the transsulfuration pathway, you have homocysteine from the methylation pathway combines with serine, and cystathionine beta synthase converts into cystathionine. And then cystathionine gamma lyase, which is abbreviated oddly enough CSE here, will then convert cystathionine using water to ammonia, alpha ketobutyrate, and cysteine. Now, although you would think that with glutathione, you're coming in here 
where the cysteine has been freed. You're skipping over cystathionine, so you're not going to make alpha-ketobutyrate. You're not going to make ammonia. You're just going to have the cysteine. That's actually not true because there's a second uh, enzymatic reaction where instead of using serine to break down homocysteine, you'll use cysteine to break down homocysteine, which generates cystathionine and hydrogen sulfide instead of water. And so that means that, (laughs) excuse me, that means that you can generate alpha-ketobutyrate and ammonium from cysteine because in the alternative CBS reaction, you're generating generating cystathionine and hydrogen sulfide. And now that cystathionine is going under normal cystathionine metabolism with cystathionine gamma-lyase to generate cysteine, alpha-ketobutyrate, and ammonia. So you sort of put cysteine in, got cysteine out, and your cysteine level didn't change, but you made alpha-ketobutyrate and ammonia. All right, so among the things we're looking at is alpha-ketobutyrate and ammonia. Now, alpha-ketobutyrate gets metabolized into propionyl-CoA, which then requires the biotin-dependent conversion to methylmalonyl-CoA, which then requires the B12-dependent conversion to uh, succinyl-CoA, and then can enter the citric acid cycle. But if you don't have biotin or you don't have B12 or you have a defect in either of those enzymes, you're going to wind up with propionyl-CoA. And if you wind up with propionyl-CoA accumulating, then you are going to wind up causing coenzyme A starvation the free CoA pool will decline, uh, the rest of metabolism will start to fail, and you will have dropping acetyl-CoA. And the lower acetyl-CoA, higher propionyl-CoA will lead to, uh, will both synergistically compromise the production of N-acetylglutamate, which is the allosteric stimulator of the, of the urea cycle. And so your urea cycle will drop at the same time that you're generating more ammonia. And you didn't generate ammonia because you had too many acids or because too many amino acids, too much protein, or you needed glucose. Generated ammonia because you had so much cysteine that it you that it like hijacked the alternative CBS reaction to make more cystathionine to generate ammonium and alpha ketobutyrate. And the alpha ketobutyrate went and poisoned your metabolism, dropped your urea cycle, and now this ammonia that you've generated can't be metabolized. So that's that's one scenario. In, now, in addition to that gamma, cystathionine gamma-lyase reaction that's produ- producing alpha-ketobutyrate and ammonia, you can also take cys- cysteine instead of cystathionine with that enzyme, and you can convert it into serine and hydrogen sulfate, sulfite, and then convert it to pyruvate and ammonia. So now you have more ammonia and you have more hydrogen sulfide. Now, on top of this, this hydrogen sulfide has to be metabolized in a coenzyme Q10-dependent reaction, delivering electrons to the electron transport chain. You know, So you've got a respiratory chain disorder or a CoQ10 synthesis problem or whatever. This step can go wrong. To make thiosulfate, which has two sulfurs in it, 
That thiosulfate is then converted to sulfite in, guess what? A glutathione-dependent reaction. Uh, and there's two different reactions. So that this can happen with rhodonese or with, uh, or with the, the glutathione-dependent thiosulfate reductase. Uh, but it seems like glutathione is important based on studies they, they talk about here with glutathione depletion, where you compromise the generation of sulfite and sulfate. So thiosulfate reductase with glutathione is, is, is converting the thiosulfate to sulfite. Um, and then that sulfite has to be metabolized in a molybdenum-dependent manner with sulfite oxidase to sulfate. All right, so what are we going to do with all this? Well, I tried to compile this into something kind of, kind of uh, manageable. And so let me share this with you. I'm going to share my screen. Go to my notes. All right, so to summarize, glutathione becomes glutamate, cysteine, and glycine. Glutamate enters the citric acid cycle, leaving ammonia. Glycine contributes to the methylation of folate, leaving ammonia. Cysteine generates ammonia through a more complex pathway that we cover right here. Okay, so option one for cysteine metabolism is to generate hydrogen sulfide gas, alpha-ketobutyrate, and ammonia, with alpha-ketobutyrate generating propionyl-CoA, which must be metabolized with biotin B12, the methylmalonic acid, and succinyl-CoA to enter the citric acid cycle. So your toxic byproducts with cysteine option one are hydrogen sulfide gas, which is a vasodilator at physiological concentrations, but is a mitochondrial poison at high concentrations. You've got propionyl-CoA, which starves the free CoA pool and, and inhibits the urea cycle. And you got ammonia which needs to be metabolized in the urea cycle in order to not put you in a coma. Cysteine option two is you make serine and hydrogen sulfide, which becomes pyruvate and ammonia. So you still got hydrogen sulfide and ammonia in both these top two. It's just that option one gives you propionyl-CoA as well. Cysteine option three, hypotaurine and then taurine. Cysteine three should be the non-toxic option here. Um, you know, but let's not rule out taurine intolerance idiot, as an idiosyncrasy. All right, so if you have options one and two, that means you have hydrogen sulfide, which is metabolized to sulfite in a multi-step process that includes CoQ, a CoQ10-dependent process, and the glutathione conversion of thiosulfate to sulfite, and then the molybdenum-dependent conversion of sulfite to sulfate. In options one and two, you have hydrogen sulfide, vasodilator, hydrogen sulfide, mitochondrial poison. You have sulfite in a glutathione, produced in a glutathione-dependent manner, which is, is all kinds of toxic. And you have potential stress on the CoQ10 respiratory chain dependency as well. Um, and so, again, option three seems like your safe option. Okay, so... I broke this down into seven hypotheses that you could test. So hypothesis one, glutamate toxicity. If this is the problem, take your glutathione dose and multiply it by 0.48 to get 48% of the dose, and then take that as L-glutamate. If that gives you the same problem, the problem is the glutamate. If it doesn't, it's not. If it makes it, you know, if it makes you feel better, it's not the problem. Hypothesis two, glycine 
as an inhibitory neurotransmitter, maybe glycine-induced neural inhibition. Take 24% of the dose of glutathione as glycine on its own. If that replicates the problem, it's the glycine. If it doesn't, it's not. If it makes you feel better, it's not the glycine. Hypothesis three, ammonia. Tritating sodium bicarbonate, baking soda, enough to bring your urine pH to eight, along with L-glutamate at 1.44 times the dose of glutathione. Um, in, in this case, the reason it's 48% of the dose is because 40, if you take 500 milligrams of glutathione, 48% of that is the mass of glutamate that's in that. Whereas here, it's 1.44, uh, where'd it go? Here, it's 1.44 times the glutathione. The reason that, that I chose that is that if you break glutathione into three amino acids, you can theoretically generate three ammonia molecules for each of, uh, for e- you know, for each molecule of glutathione you had. So I'm taking this 48% and I'm multiplying it by three. And the logic here is that alkalinity will cause you to mop up ammonia with glutamate to make glutamine. And if you supply glutamate at 1.44 times the dose of glutathione, you are supplying the amount of glutamate that you would need to mop up all the ammonia if all the nitrogens in the glutathione molecule will turn into ammonia molecules. So you have a sort of one-for-one glutamate versus ammonia supply, and you have alkalinity to push the regulation towards mopping up the ammonia. If this allows you to tolerate the glutathione, then the problem was ammonia. Um, now, these these cysteine-specific hypotheses, or the ones that are more cysteine-centric, if they're correct, it should be that 39% of the dose as L-cysteine or 53% of the dose as N-acetylcysteine should replicate the problem with glutathione. However, if that fails to replicate it, I wouldn't rule out the cysteine-centric hypotheses because it, it's po- there is evidence that NAC is mostly metabolized in the gut, so it's pot like in the intestinal cells. So it's possible that with glutathione, more is reaching the systemic circulation of the liver, and with NAC and maybe L-cysteine, more is being broken up in the gut. So unruled, I wouldn't use this to rule out a cysteine-centric hypothesis, but I think you could rule it in, right? So if if the if fifty three percent of the dose is NAC, does the exact same thing, then I think you clearly have a cysteine-centric hypothesis to deal with. So moving on to the cysteine-centric hypotheses, hypothesis four is accumulation of propionyl-CoA. First of all, make sure you correct any deficiencies of biotin and B12, because if you have deficiencies of biotin and B12, you're going to have a problem with propionyl-CoA accumulation no matter what. So make sure you don't have that. Fix it if you do. Besides that, 7.5 grams each of L-carnitine, not acetyl-L-carnitine, L-carnitine, and glycine to support the detox of propionyl-CoA if that works and allows you to tolerate the glutathione, it was a propionyl-CoA thing. Well, not, not necessarily true, but it was likely to be a propionyl-CoA thing. It could be the next thing as well. So hypothesis five is hydrogen sulfide gas. Hydrogen sulfide gas can lead to vasodilation at physiological concentrations or mitochondrial toxicity at, at pathological concentrations. If you told me you got a headache from glutathione, I would think it would, was hydrogen sulfide-mediated vasodilation. You're telling me you get brain fog. That sounds more like mitochondrial toxicity than like vasodilation. If the problem is vasodilation, you should be able to replicate it with L-citrulline by creating a nitric oxide donor to increase vasodilation. 
Um, but a way to test the hydrogen sulfide, uh, the hydrogen sulfide hypothesis is that because S-adenosylmethionine is an allosteric regulator of cysteine beta synthase, and because the more CBS activity you have, the more H2S you should get. That's not to say that it's an on-off switch for H2S. It's proportional, right? So more CBS generates more hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen sulfide gas, all things being equal. And so in that case, if you co-supplement glutathione with SAMe and it gets worse, that's a good reason to think it's H2S. And if you supplement glutathione in an extended fasting state, so like let's say you take it at you know fast all day and then take it or fast for a full day and take it the next day, if it's better when you do that, that also supports the H2S hypothesis because extended fasting should decrease CBS activity, meal feeding should increase it, SAMI supplementation should should sort of you know nitro boost it. Hypothesis six is sulfite. If it's sulfite, correction of the molybdenum deficiency should eliminate this. If it's a problem with the molybdenum, if you if you're molybdenum deficient, you should also have low uric acid. If you supplement molybdenum and it doesn't help, and your uric acid is low and didn't go up, you might have a problem making the molybdenum cofactor. And with any of these things, you can have a genetic alteration in any of the enzymes, and then. You know that's the reason that that the corrective factor didn't work, um, but you know I think if, if I think if I think molybdenum not helping uh, the problem contradicts the sulfide hypothesis. Hypothesis seven is a taurine sensitivity. If this is the case, then forty one percent of the dose of taurine take take the glutathione dose that causes you a problem. Take forty one percent of that as taurine. If you can replicate it, it's the taurine. If not, it's not. Um, you know, if it's not a taurine sensitivity, I doubt it is, then you can probably, you can probably shunt cysteine to taurine with bile acid sequestrants. So, um, let me go back to the metabolic thing. To the diagram. Hold on a second. All right. So if we come to this diagram, we can broadly speaking go down the cysteine dioxygenase route or the cysteine beta synthase route uh, to determine whether we go down the route of taurine or down the other routes. And actually, I think this this other diagram is a little bit better. Actually, this is the various the various. Um, Okay, so I, I think what might happen is that if you use bioelastic sequestrants, you will pull cysteine down to taurine um, by 
kind of like if you're getting rid of bile salts, you're getting rid of ty- taurine in your gut and your, your liver wants to make more taurine and more bile salts. And that might drive it away from sulfite generation. And and then away from these the uh, the other reactions further further up there. Well, they're not shown in a clear diagram here, but that should that should take you um, that should take you, I think, away from also the excess cysteine that would drive into cystathionine synthesis with alpha ketobutyrate and ammonium. So I think generally speaking that if you're not taurine sensitive, bile acid sequestrants such as high-dose fiber or anything else that'll bind up bile acids will suck things down towards taurine and away from the less toxic byproducts. But anyway, to get into specifics of those seven hypotheses, I think those seven tests that I gave you should, should work. And so I hope those help. Thank you, Will, for your question. Our last runner-up of the day is RB. And RB has a question on testing zinc status. I would summarize RB's question as, when does plasma zinc fall as a marker of zinc status and what is the best alternative? And she links to several articles that suggest that plasma zinc is not correlated with zinc intake and fluctuates a lot and that there's a lack of consistency with zinc intake below the RDA being a risk factor for low plasma zinc. And then she goes on to tell her own story about how she was supplementing with more and more zinc and her plasma zinc kept falling lower and lower. All right, so let me let me first just make the case for plasma zinc as what I will now defend as the best hands-down marker of zinc status, despite its limitations. So at this point, I want to just back up and talk about what happens when we're in a zinc deficiency. So what happens and there were there were classical zinc depletion experiments that came out of Janet King's lab in UC Berkeley and earlier from Ananda Prasad, who was involved in the first discovery of zinc deficiency. So Ananda Prasad and Janet King are like titans in the world of zinc research. They're like the titans in the world of zinc research, in my view. Uh, at least from a from a clinical zinc deficiency perspective, they are they are the titans. So uh, King's experiment and her 1990 review assessment of zinc status covers these as a broad overview, and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. And I think it's it's you know it was written in 32 years ago, but because of its coverage of the classic zinc deficiency experiments, uh, it is not outdated even today. Okay, so what we know is that in marginal deficiency, the zinc concentration of everything stays the same because growth and excretion will stop. So if you have a child who is zinc deficient, they don't have their anything zinc drop because they stop growing. And so how do you know if a child is zinc deficient? 
you know it because they're below the they're below the normal growth curve and you validate it by seeing if giving them 5 milligrams of zinc causes their growth to shoot up so if you have a child who's not on the growth curve and you don't do that that's clinical malfeasance that's malpractice because there's a very good chance that giving them 5 milligrams of zinc would normalize their growth and the only way you'd know it is to give them 5 milligrams of zinc and see if it normalizes their growth which has zero risk to it right okay so now you take an adult who is zinc deficient well we're not growing so we can't stop growing but what do we do our hair stops growing and we urinate zinc into our urine and we stop doing that. So hair zinc is useless as a marker of zinc deficiency because you do not drop your hair zinc concentration. You stop growing your hair. If you're a bodybuilder, you're going to have trouble putting on lean mass. But although you can't grow, you'll lose lean mass and it will take you more food to keep your body weight. But that body weight will have lean mass replaced by fat if you eat enough. Okay, now if zinc deficiency progresses far enough that stopping growth and stopping excretion cannot keep zinc homeostasis regulated with steady zinc concentrations in all the tissues, then what happens is you start reapportioning zinc to some tissues versus others. In particular, your muscle zinc goes up, your skin zinc goes up, your liver zinc goes down, your bone zinc goes down, and your plasma zinc goes down. Now, plasma zinc is thought to be the circulating portion of the exchangeable zinc pool. And that appears to be in continuity with liver zinc and with bone zinc. And it is through plasma that zinc gets out of liver and bone and into muscle and skin during deficiency. Now, when you don't see these alterations in tissue concentrations because you're in zinc balance and in zinc homeostasis, the plasma still is the exchangeable zinc pool because now as you turn over long, slowly turning over proteins that have zinc in them, the zinc escapes and gets reapportioned to a new zinc protein. And it does that through the plasma zinc. So the plasma zinc is the circulating measurable portion of the exchangeable zinc pool, which is the active exchanging zinc, both in homeostasis and in deficiency and in supplementation. Whereas all this, most of the whole body zinc is tied up and not exchangeable and not measurable and not responsive to deficiency. Now, if we look at depletion-repletion studies and we look at supplementation studies, we have a beautiful 2009 meta-analysis that is still up to date 
that pools together 35 zinc supplementation trials, pools together 11 depletion repletion trials, and shows that the only marker that is very well tested across many studies and consistently responsive to depletion, to repletion, and supplementation is plasma zinc. In addition to that, a smaller number of studies show that urine zinc is responsive. And if you go back to the depletion-repletion studies, what they show is, at least in a quick, profound depletion, urine zinc will decline very rapidly before plasma zinc does. Ananda Prasad, and that was from Janet King's research, Ananda Prasad did earlier studies showing that if you have a real slow uh, decrement in zinc, so instead of instead of like 10 weeks on a zero, almost zero zinc diet, you have like three milligrams of zinc for a couple of years. His study suggests that urine is not that sensitive and you have this slow drift of plasma zinc down. Um, you know, but it's not like there's a huge body of depletion repletion studies. So we can't make huge rules and and say when you do it quickly, this happens, when you do it not quickly, that happens. But it, in a in a very marginal deficit, it may not be the case that urine zinc is more sensitive and responds quicker. But generally, it seems to be the case that urine zinc is more sensitive and responds quicker than plasma zinc. And that's consistent with what we know about the principles of the descent, the slow descent into zinc deficiency, which is your first adaptation is for your hair to stop growing and your urine zinc to decline. And that will is what will prevent tissue stores in your liver, bone, and plasma from declining. Now, in these zinc uh, depletion-repletion studies, the other thing we know about uh, plasma zinc is that it's a very good predictor of the degree of clinical deficiency based on symptoms. So in, uh, in, in these depletion-repletion experiments, We have the most common symptoms being skin problems, and they can range from small patches of dry skin or rough skin to severe acne. And then we have diarrhea, sore throat, poor appetite, a shift from a shift from lean mass to fat mass if you eat enough to stay the same weight but a an increase in the food you need to stay that weight and then we also have some things like uh loss of glucose tolerance and so we we don't have them all the all these markers stay in the normal range, but we have drops in albumin, retinol binding protein, lactate dehydrogenase, delta amino levolinic acid, which is involved in in red heme heme uh, heme and red blood cell synthesis, and uric acid go down. And an oral glucose tolerance test, your performance on it goes down, but nothing goes out of range. 
Now, if you look at Janet King's depletion repletion studies, they show that the amount of zinc lost as all those clinical symptoms set in is only 5% of the whole body zinc. And Ananda Prasad's uh, depletion repletion studies suggested that that um, 25% of the whole body pool could be lost over 24 weeks of a much more marginal deficit, although he did it at a time where the zinc measurement, the whole body zinc measurement might have been less accurate. So it's not quite certain that, that that's the case. So, But we can at least say that the amount of zinc you need to lose from... Janet King's depletion repletion studies to have all these clinical symptoms is only 5% of the whole body zinc. And the plasma zinc, though, goes down, uh, I believe it was 45%. 65% for plasma zinc, it can go down. Right? So you have this. So first of all, why is why is it so disproportionate? Why is it only 5% of whole body zinc going down? Because most of the zinc in the body doesn't, it's just staying the same no matter what you do, right? It's just in these slow moving proteins and it's not what's driving clinical symptoms of zinc deficiency. And it's not part, it's not measurable in an easy way. And it's not part of what's dynamic. The plasma zinc is the central component of what is dynamically shifting around. And it's exquisitely sensitive to the clinical symptoms of zinc deficiency in a way that whole body zinc isn't. Whole body zinc only goes down 5% in these clinical deficiency. Um, so, you know, it can go down a lot more than that. So, for example, I've seen a study of smell and taste dysfunction where people had a 30% deficit in whole body zinc. So, I'm not saying it can't go lower than that. I'm just saying it doesn't have to go and it doesn't have to go further than 5% of whole body zinc for you to get sore throat, diarrhea, glucose intolerance, dry skin, severe acne, etc. Um, now, that's not to say plasma zinc is perfect. So we also know, and I covered this years ago in my Mastering Nutrition episode 28, why you should manage your zinc status and how to do it. And we also know that plasma zinc is, is decreased by a meal probably because in the fasting state, tissue catabolism is releasing stored zinc and it's decreased by inflammation, oxidative stress, the ovulatory and luteal phases of the menstrual cycle, probably by pregnancy and oral contraceptive use and any kind of stress that leads to adrenal output. Now, Janet King suggested that you could use plasma metallothionine as an index of whether that stress response is activated. But I don't know anyone who offers a plasma methionine test. I can tell you that red blood cell methionine is not useful in this way. Um, it's Although Janet King suggested that you could differentiate between the stress response by looking at red blood cell methionine, which should go down only in zinc deficiency and not in a stress response, and plasma methionine, which should go up in a stress response. And she said, if you measure plasma zinc, plasma metallothionine, and red blood cell metallothionine, then you can know if plasma zinc is down because of zinc deficiency or because of a stress response. Um, but I don't know. I don't. LabCorp and Quest don't offer metallothionine tests, so I don't know where you get this outside of a research uh, lab. So that's not useful. Um, 
But now, usually, when when plasma zinc goes down because of the stress response, it's with the exception of eating, right? For every other reason that plasma zinc goes down except the stress response, it seems to be a reapportioning of zinc into tissues that need it. So it's not obvious that if your plasma zinc goes down because of a stress response, that the choice is to not replete the zinc. It's going down because it, the zinc's being sucked up into tissues that need it. So that might still be a case where you do want to correct the plasma zinc anyway. Um, you know, but these studies that show that dietary intake isn't well reflected in, in plasma zinc, I mean, that's A, I wouldn't expect it to be, right? Because there are so many other factors, especially phytate, but also animal protein intake that bring a zinc absorption up and down. But B, you're not trying to estimate your dietary intake with your plasma zinc. You can know your dietary intake based on your diet. So if you're doing a study where you're trying to know people's food frequency questionnaire is accurate to use plasma zinc to corroborate their zinc intake, then you can't do that because it doesn't correlate with zinc intake on a food frequency questionnaire. If it did, you could use that to validate the FFQ. But as a for a clinical use, who cares? You don't need, for you as a person, you don't need to estimate your dietary zinc intake with your plasma zinc. You already know your dietary zinc intake. Or if you don't, you can just calculate it based on what you're eating. So that we don't care about that. Um, you know, across all the supplementation trials, trials pooled, what they show is that every doubling of zinc intake from a supplement increases plasma zinc 6%. That's not really clinically useful to know either, but it does show you that in deficiency and supplementation, plasma zinc goes up. Um, you know, But you don't need to know if you're supplementing with your plasma zinc because you know you took the supplement. So the real reason you want to know your plasma zinc is because you want to know if you are of a status that your nutrition, your zinc nutrition could be contributing to your clinical symptoms or that you're at risk of that. And what, what the depletion repletion studies show is that once you get down to 70 on plasma zinc, that's where all the symptoms show up. So plasma zinc is an exquisitely excellent index of whether zinc nutrition status has declined to the point where clinical symptoms are at risk, which is the main utility of it in a clinical scenario or for managing personal nutrition. Now, Arby also had the the story of how she kept increasing her zinc supplementation and plasma zinc kept going down. But she's also talking about having SIBO. And SIBO causes inflammation, and inflammation decreases plasma zinc. So there might be a very easy explanation here with the inflammation. And that doesn't mean that you don't want to restore the plasma zinc. Maybe you need to because the inflammation is increasing your need for zinc, and that's why the plasma zinc is going down. But as to your question, RB, about what you know, how do you better navigate this? I think you look at urine zinc. And I think in this case, it would be useful to look at hair zinc because hair zinc does not go down in deficiency, but it goes up in supplementation. And if your supplementation is... If it's... If your plasma zinc looks like it's not being corrected, but you're worried that you have too much zinc going somewhere, it might increase your hair zinc. So it it might be worth looking at that. 
But urine zinc, you know, if your plasma zinc is low and your urine zinc is low, then you're probably not absorbing that zinc. And you need to do something about that. You need to either change the form of zinc you're using. You know, if you're using an amino acid chelate, try something else. Try a salt. If you're using a salt, try an amino, an amino acid chelate. If, you try, if you're using gluconate, try acetate. If you're using acetate, try citrate. If you're using glycinate, try methionine. If you're using methionine, try glycinate, right? So just try, just use a different form or higher dose or, you know, with a carnivore meal or in the fasting state or whatever, alter these, increase the dose, whatever it is, to see if you can up your plasma zinc given the low urinary zinc. If your urinary zinc is real high and your plasma zinc is low, then you're clearly absorbing it, whether it's all going into the urine or just all going out of the plasma into everywhere else, I wouldn't know for sure. But I think the rest you address with symptoms, right? So go back to the children who are off, off the growth curve. How do you test whether they're off the growth curve because, because of zinc? You give them five milligrams of zinc, and if they go back on the growth curve, they had zinc deficiency, right? So if you have symptoms that are zinc responsive, then you need to use that as an independent validation of the zinc deficiency apart from these other things. But you're telling me that if you take too much zinc, you get insomnia. I would want to know, does that only happen if you take the zinc at night? Or do you have increasing insomnia every night if you continually take more zinc every morning? If it's a zinc at night thing, then I would say, you know, take the zinc in the morning. Don't take it at night. But if it's, you know, if it's taking it in the morning is increasing your insomnia more and more as time goes on, I mean, that suggests zinc is building up somewhere that's causing insomnia. And so you drop the zinc, right? If you're not getting relief from any symptoms and you can't get a clear picture from the markers, you, you have to go on the symptoms if, you, if, the, if the markers don't make sense. But in what RB says in, in her outline, I think this could easily be explained by inflammation Tacking uh, uh, taxing the plasma zinc, that that means that you should supplement with zinc to try to bring it up back to normal, but you should cut back if you're experiencing adverse effects such as insomnia. I think hair zinc and urine zinc are probably your best bets for something you could measure given that we can't access plasma and red blood cell metallothionine tests. All right, thank you, RB, for your question. That's it for the winners and runners-up. And I can't believe I took that long, but now we're going to go to... Um, if Thalia still has her question, Thalia, I'm going to promote you to a panelist. If you're still there, Thalia, you can ask your question. Then we'll go to the Q&A box. Hi, Chris. Um, did you Hi, need Thalia. me to that video? I can hear you. I can't see you. Oh, sorry. Uh... Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for uh, taking my question. My pleasure. I was just going to to reread what I put in the Q and A. I wasn't sure how it worked. Now I can't find it there. Um, it's at the top. Open answer. Okay. Sorry, it says no open questions. No answered questions and dismissed. Yeah, no, you know, there should be open 20. 
No. On the top, you can go to answer, dismissed, or open, and open should say parentheses 20, and yours is at the top. Yeah, I, I could read it up until I just was. Oh, all right. To well, I can read it to you if you want. Uh, oh, <laughs> that'd be great. Just, just so that I um, don't have to try to verbalize the complicated question. All right. So I'm reading it. It says that you wanted to understand the efficacy differences between oral use of NR and MN and NADH. For, oh, I, yeah, you had put this in the, um, on the yeah. website as well. Um, and so for some reason, for some reason, though, the info that you keep hearing is NMN and NR and never NEDH, and you want to know the difference. Um, and, you know, and how, how in, uh, absorption in the gut is, is all impacting that. Okay. So when you eat, when you eat niacin in food, it's mostly NADH and it's some, some NADPH. And there might be some nicotinamide. Um, well, actually, in plant foods, there's going to be some nicotinic acid. Um, and you're, you're basically getting all these things. When you digest it, in the stomach, you need acidity to extract the NADH from proteins. And then in the small intestine, you have enzymes that break the NADH down largely into... Um, Nicotinamide rib riboside, nicotinamide, um, and I don't think you'll break it down further than that. Um, so, if you take if you take nicotinamide mononucleotide, you're probably going to convert it into nicotinamide riboside. And if you take any DH, you're probably going to turn it into nicotinamide riboside. And if you take nicotinamide riboside or any of those, you're probably going to turn some of any of those into nicotinamide. So I don't think it's going to make it any difference if you're taking NR, NMN, or NADH. And I think you know it might make a difference, but everyone's just kind of speculating. And the digestive process would suggest that it's getting absorbed mostly as nicotinamide and NR. Uh, so um, it just so happens that the NADH I'm taking is a trademark version that says it's resistant to stomach acid, so that shouldn't really make any difference in terms of the efficacy versus I I I don't know that uh, I'd have to look at uh, the chemical form because but just based on what they're saying that's not saying that it's not going to be broken down by enzymes it's just saying that it's not going to be broken down by acidity so I don't know yeah. what they did to it if maybe it's buffered against stomach acid or something like that but that doesn't mean that it's broken down but if it's not broken down, then it might not be absorbed because I'm not saying you can't absorb any DH, but the but the small intestine is going to kind of assume you're getting most of the breakdown products. So the the transport routes are probably a lot higher for the for the broken down forms. Okay. You know, but if you feel better on that in a way that you that you don't when you take NR, NMN, or NAM, then you know that's a signal. Uh, it's not that. So to be uh transparent, I guess, and to everyone who's listening. So I, I um, train for a supplement company, which I won't mention they are, and they have the NADH. And I you know, have to train on it. And uh, out of all the supplements we have, this one just confuses me the most. I wish I had a chemistry <laughs> background. And, um, and my feeling and my hunch is that it doesn't make any better difference. And I wouldn't personally use any of them. And I don't think there's enough evidence uh, you know, to there, warrant. Yeah, there's... Um, there really isn't that much evidence 
favoring any of these supplements being better than food niacin or better than each other. Um, you know, that, but, but, but there is, I guess there is some evidence that if you take any of these higher forms above nicotinamide, you will get higher nicotinamide concentrations in the liver that will lead to higher circulating nicotinamide concentrations that will lead to more nicotinamide reaching peripheral tissues that will therefore lead to higher NAD levels. Um, that's, you know, it's, that's from piecing together what we know about the metabolism and some animal studies, basically. And no one's really shown any obvious clinical benefit to taking, especially any of these really high doses that people are recommending. Um, but when I look at it, I'm kind of like, well, you know, that's, I just look at it as there are reasons to think that if you eat a diet that includes animal foods and you're getting NADH and NMN and NR, well, NR is mostly in milk, but during the breakdown process, you're getting all these diversity of things. You're probably getting marginally better niacin status than if you're just taking like nicotinic acid, I think. Um, you know, but but all the other things that, that you're probably right that there's more hype than there is science. Although you know, maybe it won't stay that way. Like I'm pretty open minded about it given the current state of the evidence. Okay, hopefully, well, maybe one day there'll be an update. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks right. very much, Chris. I want to get more of your time. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, now we're going to the Q and A box. Cindy M says, hi, Chris. Thanks, as always, for hosting these. I always learn a lot. Do you know of any reasons for someone who isn't following a low-carb or intermittent fasting diet you know, as normal glucose to show ketones in urinalysis results? Um, well, I would say, first of all, a lot of people are accidentally following a ketogenic diet. I, a lot of people just aren't tracking their their carbs that well and their perception of what a low carb diet is 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 off <laughs> and they're accidentally eating a keto diet um then of course there's mcts and coconut oil will do this um and then you know in the urine like i would look at the blood levels uh you know to get a more precise number but you could have a um you could have a genetic disorder in ketone utilization, in which case everyone produces 140 calories of kilocalories of ketones overnight on average. And if you're not utilizing them, your ketones will get a lot higher than if you are. Um, or you could have a biotin deficiency or a pyruvate car carboxylase deficiency, in which case you would convert glucose into ketones. And I think it would be useful to, to get a ketone meter and measure your ketone response to meals. What should happen is your ketones are highest in the fasting state. They go down if you eat carbs. Uh, if they don't, or if they go up, then you know you have something unusual on, on your hands. If everything looks normal, then you know it, it's probably just a, uh, a residual effect of an accidentally low-carb diet. Thank you, Cindy, for your question. 
Anonymous says, in a previous month's AMA, you said we should aim to have calcium smoothed out over the day. Do you mean throughout a single day or from one day to another? What are the consequences of having a lot of calcium once per week or and low calcium the rest of the week for someone taking calcium supplements periodically? I meant at every meal. <laughs> um, not, not, not on the daily average. The consequences of having your calcium go up and down are that you that you have transient episodes of hypercalcemia that lead to soft tissue calcification and spend most of your time in a high parathyroid hormone state leading to constant near constant bone resorption that would be that problem so i absolutely would not take calcium once a week or try to hit a weekly average on calcium you want that out as smooth smoothed out as you can get it thank you anonymous for your question RJ Douglas says, Dr. Masterjohn, thank you so much for doing these AMAs. They are extremely helpful and educational. Thank you, RJ. If my memory serve, if my memory is correct, you once posted a list of best practices for cold flu season on your blog. Since we're getting into that season again, I searched for it but could not find it as such. Could you please give a brief rundown of your best practices for cold flu season, particularly in regard to what kinds of supplements you recommend and the dosages, elderberry, zinc acetate, etc.? Um the top things to have in your medicine cabinet would be 0.5% povidone iodine, betadine, cold defense nasal spray, and life extension zinc acetate lozenges. And you should have a source of vitamins A and D on hand, whether it be cod liver oil or whatever. And couldn't hurt to have elderberry and garlic. And whatever else you like to have, vitamin C, whatever. But the top thing is at your first sneeze, if you're home and you got the povidone iodine, run it through each nostril 30 seconds, take a zinc acetate lozenge. If you're out and about, carry a betadine nasal, uh, cold defense nasal spray in your backpack or your glove compartment in your car or your pocket or whatever, and put two squirts in. If it still seems like you're having the sneeze come back, you know, then you want to, you basically want to keep that up every, you know, every time you sneeze until the pressure of sneezing comes back. Then it could start in your throat and you just sort of do the same thing in your throat. Um, and then. Once you reach some stability where you're not feeling it like creep on you and and attack, then then you can cut the zinc acetate lozenges down to once every two hours. You got to suck on them. Don't chew them. It has to be life extension zinc acetate, no exceptions. Uh, you could drop those to two out once every two hours, and and you know betadine or povidone iodine four times a day, and. You know, you should start eating uh, a high vitamins A and D diet with glutathione boosting things. And you know, see my episode on nutrition and immunity. Uh, go to premium on on here. I did a two hour video on it. Just follow all the when you get sick recommendations there. But just briefly, it's glutathione or whey protein or raw milk, vitamins A and D. Increase your food sources of vitamin C, vitamin E, K two. And, and so on. All right. Thank you, RJ, for your question. 
Sandy Tiller says, is there anything besides diet that can cause a high baseline glucose? I'm a lean, fit, 59-year-old woman who exercises daily, eats a whole food, Weston A. Price type diet, practices with time-restricted eating, doesn't snack, doesn't eat many processed foods, seed oils, eats moderate complex carbs, walks after dinner. I feel like I have ticked all the boxes, but according to my CDM, my glucose hovers between 105 and 110. With postprandial spikes at 30 to 40 points, it comes down fairly quickly, even in the middle of the night. It rarely goes below 100 to 105. My insulin has risen from below 3 to 8 in the last year. The concerns, This concerns me since I am ApoE4 with a heavy family history of heart disease. Can you think of anything else I should look to bring the glucose and or insulin levels down or could this just be my norm? You absolutely should not be using a CDM to decide whether your fasting glucose is elevated. You should get three fasting glucose venous draws at LabCorp and you should record the exact time of the blood draw and compare it to your CGM. And you should use that to calibrate your CGM. So if your fasting glucose at LabCorp is 85 to 95, while your CGM says 105 to 110, your fasting glucose is 85 to 95, not 105 to 110. And you should divide the average of those three times from LabCorp um, by the average of the three exact time point CGM readings and use that as an adjustment factor to all your other measures. Now, granted, this would be even better if you also did three a half hour after a meal so that you could see if the adjustment factor was the same postprandially as fasting. But you're worried about your fasting glucose. So, you know, it's sufficient to take three fasting measurements and calibrate the CGM with them. Uh, but don't, don't ever worry about anything from a CGM. <laughs> Use the CGM to figure out what you might worry about and then validate your worry with something that is accurate. Uh, that said, you know, if your fasting glucose is elevated, uh, could either be residual from your dinner uh, you could test that by eating super low carb for dinner, but eating all your carbs at breakfast. If that reverses, then you know it was residual from dinner. Um, cortisol, you could run a, a, you could just take a fast in cortisol when you go to do your calibration tests at LabCorp. Although it's even better to see your cortisol awakening response and cortisol rhythm, rhythm through the day. The Dutch complete. Or, uh, dried hormone test with the cortisol awakening response, I think, is is the best thing to do. Um, it, or it's glucagon. Uh, and it, I, it's conceivable that zinc deficiency actually could do that. So, you know, if all these things fail, you want to look at... Um, Do you say your body weight here? I think you said you're lean. Yeah, you're lean. I, you know, so it's not if it's not body composition and it's not cortisol, and uh, it's not residual from the last meal, and it's accurate. Then I would look at uh, go to the cheat sheet. You have a free copy since you're a MasterPass member. Go to the oxidative stress section and run all the lab tests in the oxidative stress section, and see if you have anything to work on there. Thank you, Sandy, for your question. Liz Eric says carnitine. 
Well, some people, especially 70-year-olds, benefit from supplementing carnitine as acetyl-L-carnitine because endogenous synthesis is limited. Any other thoughts on supplementation? Um, some people will benefit from carnitine because it will promote fatty acid oxidation. And if your carnitine levels are low or you feel like you benefit from carnitine, you should take car- carnitine. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, you know, some people have enough and some people benefit from supplementing. Thank you, Liz, for your question. Bennett Cohen says, what are your thoughts on the current FAD continuous glucose monitoring, CGM? About five companies are sending me solicitations for their sensor software instruction. Is there merit to the underlying theory that diminishing glucose peaks is the key to health? Essentially, have you tried CGM on yourself? I'm not, I'm, I haven't tried a CGM, but my fingers would hurt less if I, if I did because I'm, I'm currently doing metabolic experiments, simultaneously testing ketones, lactate, and glucose uh, fasting, and then at the and then before the meal, fifteen minutes after, thirty minutes after, nine, sixty minutes after, ninety and twenty. <laughs> so I'm generally pricking all ten of my fingers every day. Um, all eight of my fingers. I haven't done my thumbs yet. Uh, but a CDM would help me unless it's a continuous glucose ketone lactate monitor. And I did hear overhear Don D'Agostino at a conference saying that Abbott had, had given him a continuous ketones glucose lactate monitor. I wish I had one because <laughs> it would help me out. Um, you know, up downside of CGM is, is that, as I was saying to the last question, accuracy can be an issue. So you do want to calibrate it if you've got something to worry about it. And if you're looking at postprandial spikes, you really should c- calibrate the postprandial level. So I would look at your peak glucose on the CGM, pick the point of the peak glucose in response to a, uh, a like a well-controlled, specifically exactly this amount of whatever meal. And then I would do what I said in the other question, but for the postprandial response. You know, so if, you're glu- if, you're, if you verify with the CGM, your glucose speaks at 60 minutes. Eat the exact same meal three times and go to LabCorp, get a random glucose one hour after the meal. Um, and of course, you're not going to be able to control when you get called in and when they take the blood, but look at the time when they take the blood and record it and look at the exact reading on the CGM um, approximately at your predicted peak glucose level in response to the same controlled meal and use that as your postprandial calibrator. And uh, doing that, I think you can use 140 as the postprandial point at which you should expect oxidative stress to be generated. And that's not to say that you should worry if your glucose goes over 140. I wouldn't worry, but from a standpoint of biochemical optimizing, I do think that keeping postprandial glucose under 140 is a, is a worthwhile goal as there are pretty elegant data showing that that's the threshold in both diabetics and non-diabetics for spillover of glucose into the polyol pathway, which lowers NADPH and hurts glutathione recycling and has some other negative effects. Thank you, Bennett, for your question. Maria had to jump. She says, thank you. Thank you, Maria. RB says, thank you for answering our questions over... You're welcome, RB. Over the course of at least 10 years and at least five blood tests, and we're over time now, so I just ate breakfast before this, and I got to eat my lunch afterwards, and I got to finish all my feed by 9.30. So 
Uh, no more questions, but I'll go through what is here. RV says, thank you, Chris, for your answering our questions. Over the course of at least 10 years and at least five blood tests, I've had very low triglycerides, 37 to 59, as well as gut issues like bloating and gas. My cholesterol is high, went even higher after several years of going on a clean and diet removing processed foods. What's the price? Paleo type diet, gluten, gluten-free diet. Well, the doctor told me they think my symptoms fit with signs of early cholestasis. I'm wondering if you think this is plausible and what could be bodily explanations for my pattern of blood markers and symptoms. I think that that is evidence of fat malabsorption. Um, you know, although it's it's interesting that your cholesterol goes up with your diet. That doesn't sound like generalized fat malabsorption. So I wonder if you have an ApoB48 uh, deficiency. And so you're malabsorbing... I still don't know why your cholesterol would go up so easily in response to diet. Um... I mean, I guess the saturated, maybe your response to the saturated fat in the diet, raising your cholesterol. RB says, my LDL went up to 100, up, up 100 points in six months when eating about five eggs a day and more butter fat. Well, look, it's not clear whether you're absorbing that cholesterol, whether it's the saturated fat. If you wanted to test that, you could eat like a lot of coconut oil and see if that has a similar effect on your cholesterol. Then you know you're not absorbing the cholesterol necessarily, you're just making a lot. Right, so you could have an you can have an ApO forty eight deficiency, ApoB forty eight, which would lower chylomicron synthesis in the small intestinal cells, and so you're fat malabsorbing. Um, but you're absorbing some fat, you're absorbing some cholesterol, but the saturated fat in your diet is ramping up the cholesterol synthesis. That's my best guess for why it would be selective like that. Um, also, your fat-soluble vitamins are not super low either, from what I remember. So, I don't know, it's tough to say. I mean, it, it, it could be, uh, I guess it'd be cholestasis, but I don't, I don't see why I would specifically pull that out. Um, you know, and if it's, if it's always been the case, it could be a genetic thing, like a, like a genetic uh, deficiency in ApoB48. Um, that would be a hypo-beta lipoproteinemia. Right, that's my best guess, given what we have here. Sorry, I can't go into more detail. Thanks, Toby, for your question. John Needham says, thanks for the answers to his question. You're welcome, John. Anonymous says, in the past, You've recommended against taking too much cod liver oil because if you need to limit excess omega-3s, could you expand on what the concern is about this and could be offset by taking more omega-6s or does this not address that issue? Um, I'm not going to go into detail on this because I went into great detail in the nutrition and immunity video that I that I gave to all of you. So go go back on Substack and, and, and watch the nutrition and immunity video. Fast forward to the part about essential fatty acids. But briefly, EPA inhibits arachidonic acid metabolism, which in the gut could cause food intolerances. In uh, the context of the inflammatory response, it could hurt the initiation of inflammation. 
needed to mount against infectious disease. Um, and all, uh, all commenters on the traditional use of cod liver oil talked about having limits to it. Weston Price, John Hughes Bennett, etc. But watch the nutrition and immunity video and, and skip to that part. Keyword search the transcript for cod liver oil and see the timestamp and read that part or watch that part. I go into great detail on it. Thanks, Anonymous. Barbie says, thank you for going through the sulfur metabolism and H2S pathways. I also struggle with H2S overgrowth with bacteria like desulfovibrio and H2S gas. But I've noticed that I actually feel better mood and energy-wise when I have worse H2S gas symptoms. What would be a reason for this? I've read Dr. Greg Nye's Devil in the Garlic book where he suggests that H2S could be an adaptive response where the body is trying to get sulfur and H2S bacteria is the body's way of doing that, which makes me wonder if that's my issue. That sounds exceedingly unlikely to be true. <laughs> um, I haven't read that book, but that makes no sense to me. Maybe it'll make sense to me if I read his book, but that uh, on the surface that makes no sense. Um, I don't. I don't see why you need to invoke the H2S. I mean, it's possible that I mean H2S is a regulatory molecule that you're supposed to have. It's a major vasodilator alongside nitric oxide in the in the vasculature, and it has other regulatory values. But I don't see why you need to um, why you need to necessarily invoke H2S. It, it could just be your diet. Right, like if you're eating more animal protein, for example, that's generating more H2S, you feel better because you have more animal protein, including the sulfur. But it might not be the H2S, it might be the sulfate. If Nye's saying that you might make H2S on the way to getting sulfate, that's of course correct. We went through that. In endogenous metabolism, you're going you're gonna to go to H2S on the way to sulfate. But if he's saying that you can endogenously activate that pathway, so you're feeding bacteria that are giving you H2S. That sounds that sounds wild because no one has that level of deficiency in the endogenous extraction of sulfur from animal protein. Um, yeah, so I mean, maybe it's an H2S thing. There's physiological regulation uh, value of H2S, but I don't see why it necessarily is versus just you feel better when you're on the nutrients provided in the diet that does that. All right, thanks, Herbie, for the question. Nana says, should I always use a reference range that the lab I did the test with, or should I consider other labs' ranges? I've noticed that different labs have different ra reference ranges, intervals for the same test. For example, LabCourse's reference ranges for glycine is one, whereas Genova says it's a different one. Um, you should use the lab's reference range unless there's data to overrule that. So for example, in my cheat sheet, I will list specific things where I think the lab's reference range is limited, but you absolutely should never run one lab tests test and use a, the range from the other lab and substitute for it. Because as anyone who has ever done any of these chemical analysis measurements knows, these numbers aren't real numbers. They're, they're approximations. Uh, abs they're abstractions that are proportional to the machines that you're running. <laughs> um, I'm sorry to say that 
that 144 micromoles per liter is not 144 micromoles per, per liter. The only place where numbers are exact numbers is in math textbooks, where you're, you're doing abstract math that with no empirical measurements. All empirical measurements are subject to error, and labs, you know, it, sometimes it's an ideology that makes the difference. In which case, you should know the ideology and the science behind why you're doing something different than the lab you got that from. But oftentimes, it's just lab cores rate uh, distribution runs to the right, Genova's runs to the left, exactly like sometimes you're a 10 in one brand for shoe size and a 9 in another. Um, so if you trust Genova, Use Genova's test. Don't use LabCorp's test in Genova's range because you trust Genova. I mean, if you want to trust Genova over LabCorp, fine. But one thing you should not trust Genova for is responsibility for LabCorp's results. All right? So never do that. Uh, sorry, never do that. RB says, if time allows, Cyrus, thank you for your explanation around zinc. If inflammation was the reason for my low plasma zinc, would that necessarily show up on blood tests like C-reactive protein because I always have low HSCRP? You would think it would, but um, you know, I if you can't make sense of it, you kind of want to measure like IL6 and IL1 and I think IL-6 and IL-1 would be good enough. Broaden your view of inflammation a little bit. I mean, it's just... you Lab tests never rule in or out anything. They, they point you in a direction of probability. That's all they do. Anonymous says, Dr. CMJ, I love the, the taste of roasted potatoes. Me too. Especially if they're salted. However, I have recently learned that they could potentially create acrylamides, which can be carcinogenic. Could you please tell me your thoughts on the level of danger related to acrylamides for most vegetables? Specifically, do you believe this is something that people should be concerned about and accordingly steam boiler vegetables instead of frying roasting, or do you believe the dangers are not concerning? Um, I believe that there's a bazillion types of damaging chemicals, and there's a whole suite of them that come from cooked food. Um, and that there is, you know, not a lot known conclusively about the relative dangers, but there is some data suggesting that for metabolically compromised people, they should, they should be more careful to emphasize lightly cooked foods. So there, there is some evidence, for example, that like overcook a food and a diabetics glucose handling will get worse. Outside of that, um, you know, not not much solid evidence. So, I would say that um, you want to eat something like twenty to thirty percent of your food raw and twenty to thirty percent of your food lightly cooked, and you can allow thirty percent of your food roasted just the way you like it. Um, that didn't quite add up, but you know, you can. You can expand the either the raw or the lightly cooked portion a little bit, but maybe make 30% of your food 
nice and crispy the way you like it. And eat it along with raw and lightly cooked food. You know, so have your roasted potatoes exactly the way you like them and eat them with some fresh uh, fruit or raw fermented vegetables or lightly cooked kale or something like that. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Anonymous says, in past AMAs, you mentioned you take supplements based on genetics results saying you have a lower K. How much weight should I place on genetic test results like the ones from 23andMe and Self-Decode? By show up as having 9% higher likelihood of having a particular problem by a self-decode analysis, should I take preventable action with this disease? Okay, I'm going to give you an answer right now. You should not attach any number of weight to that. You should use it as a brainstorming tool at that allows you to look at evidence of what's actually happening in your body rather than a predisposition which is lab testing and your signs and symptoms and whatever other performance indicators for your health you want to use. Um, so if you have no health problems tied to a genetic result and you have no health metrics you're trying to improve that are theoretically related to it, and you have no lab data suggesting that the problem that genes suggest you have, you should give them zero weight. But if they line up with other forms of evidence, then you should use that to solidify your view about why that evidence is important. So for example, with vitamin K, I have low vitamin K recycling. I also have a tendency to, towards tooth decay that uh, gets that goes away when I'm on a Weston A price type diet, which is, might be explained by higher vitamin K2 intake. I have iron overload if I don't give blood for a year and a half. And I feel better when I get my blood drawn. And I 23andMe told me I'm homozygous for H63D. Um, you know, by contrast, 23andMe told me I'm ApoE4. Therefore, I'm going to go buy a book on how to eat for ApoE4s. That's dumb. <laughs> okay. You get what I mean? Like line up the evidence and use the genetic predisposition as a as a one leg of a multi-legged stool on which your your view of what you should be doing is resting. If you rest a stool on one leg, you're gonna fall over. Okay. Hope that answers your question. Thank you. Anonymous um, says many people swear by C buckthorn oil supplements, high in omega-7s, aka palmitoleic acid, as a treatment for dry eyes, which you said that's actually a sign of low vitamin A. Do you think the mechanism of action somehow raises vitamin A to address dry eyes, or would you recommend it supplement for someone with that with those problems? Um, I don't know anything about sea buckthorn oil, and I don't know anything about the relationship between palmitoleic acid and dry eyes, but Assuming it's true, I would just point out that vitamin A is not the only thing that's related to dry eyes. Vitamin A isn't the the oily substance in your eyes. So maybe the but what vitamin A does for dry eyes is promote proper epithelial cell differentiation. You need the epithelial cells that make mucus, but mucus then is made of a bunch of other stuff. And so I don't know, maybe mucus has palmitoleic acid in it, in which case that might be the relationship. Um but I, I haven't studied the topic. Anonymous says, what are reasons for high magnesium RBC but normal serum magnesium that shows up on repeat lab work? Um, 
that's kind of an unusual pattern. I wouldn't I wouldn't expect it. I'd expect the opposite before I'd expect that. It might be I mean, my like assuming you haven't dropped your magnesium supplementation, you know, because if you were supplementing with magnesium four weeks ago and you stopped, then that might be why. But you're saying it's continually popping up. So either it's a high rate of cellular uptake or you're kind of ODing on magnesium and you're well regulating your serum magnesium to pee it into your urine. So you might want to drop your... That might be like a real sensitive uh, indicator of excess magnesium supplementation. So if you are supplementing, you might want to drop it and see what that does. Other than that, maybe you got really great ATP levels that need to chelate it all. Maybe it's a good thing. Anonymous says in your COVID guide, you recommend Zebavir AB21, but it actually has not just probiotics, but also 400 IU vitamin D in each pill. How do we know the effects in their trials are due to the pro- pro- probity probiotic and not just the vitamin D supplement? There's, uh, I, didn't, I didn't even realize that. But regardless, there's no way on earth 400 IU of vitamin D would do anything. <laughs> I mean, look at the... Uh, Look at the doses used in the in the COVID trials where infection risk bottoms out at 50 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. You need mega doses in early illness. to. I, just, I can't imagine 400 IU is even useful. I, it might be, but I mean, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Zedivir AB21 had good results. So um, I wouldn't expect those results to be good if it was 400 IU with a probiotic. That that seems stretching the limits of my imagination. It's possible, but I don't know. I mean, the research is a mess. So I took, you know, look, there's there's good reason to believe probiotics have a role, and that's the probiotic that has the best role. Is it confounded? Maybe. I don't know. But the trial was a success. So Anonymous says, what is a burning sensation in the stomach a sign of? It's something that just recently started for me, so I think it might be due to some supplement of dietary changes or nutritional imbalance. Not sure which ones I should suspect. It sounds like stomach acid to me. I'd look at anything that could raise histamine. Thank you for your question. Anonymous says, should I have taken should I take action on low threonine of 50 when reference interval 67 to 8 to 211.6 on the amino acid panel from the core? Um, no, I don't see any way to treat a threonine level. Uh, but that's, that's not how you use amino acids. You look at patterns to look at metabolic things going on. You don't treat levels of amino acids on their own. When I look at uh, anonymous, this is the last question today. Anonymous says, when I look at vitamin K2, MK4 that naturally occurs in food, for example, butter oil, emu oil, it looks like it's at very small doses compared to what I see in supplements. Easy Thorns MK4 liquid has one milligram of MK4 for every drop. When I take vitamin K2, MK4 in supplements, I start getting heart palpitations and feel overactivated. Is it unnatural to take such high levels of MK4 as in supplements? Um, yes, it's completely unnatural. Um, and it's a drug. Uh, one milligram is kind of questionable. I mean, it's sort of like... You're not going to get one milligram from food, but 
if you really tried to and you were a fanatic about it, you could probably push your food total K2 to, to one milligram, but probably not your MK4. Um, you know, so you're kind of on the borderline uh, straddling like super high food versus low pharmacological dose. It's not really natural. Um, but, you know, many other people report heart palpitations on much smaller doses of MK7. So I think it's, uh, I think it's probably giving you hypocalcemia by like sequestering. MK4 is a bone resorption inhibitor, right? So your serum calcium levels maintain stability through bone resorption going up and down. And if you're taking a bone resorption inhibitor at a dose that's causing bone resorption inhibition, you're probably going to have transient episodes of hypocalcemia and that could give you heart palpitations. That's, that would be my top guess. All right. Thank you, everyone. I will uh, have the recording and transcript out hopefully within a week. And I will uh, try to let you know when the next one is tonight or tomorrow. It'll be next month sometime. And thank you for your questions. Have a great night, everyone.